very much the same playbook happened in the U.S. Uh, you know, during the the sort of religious revival that took place, begin I would say beginning in the eighties, but really with you know with Bush uh, really took hold. You know, this idea of the uh, the the sort of uh, compassionate religious conservative, you know, that simultaneously like hell bent on you know restricting uh, restricting women and and you know all of this insanity. Um, but you know, you see, uh, I mean, the the, the because in theory, you know, somebody like Kutub, you know, Said Kutub, who, who, of course, tried to assassinate Nasser and was hanged for it. You know, he's not it's not strictly speaking incompatible uh, with, uh, you know, with being independent and having a national uh, a sort of a nationalist, um, you know, political bent. And in fact, you know, my understanding is the two of them were, were allies before the, the sort of officers, you know, Nasser led the officers coup. But once it was clear that Nasser, you know, had a more secularist uh, approach, uh, you know, like you say, the the things that are in the immaterial, you know, for Qutb, like having having you know having Sharia law in Egypt was like you know foremost for him, and so uh, you know that that um, that sort of superseded the, uh, the the sort of material, uh, you know, nationalizing the oil and and sort of achieving an actual you know economic beyond political independence from from the UK uh, that that Nasser was aiming for. Uh, it's it's very interesting to see kind of the um, the the convergence, the way that the same strategies get used, uh, and and you know I suppose if you look back over history, I mean religion has played that role pretty much in every single empire that's that's ever existed. It's just a very postmodern way where it's not the U.S. trying to impose its particular state religion, or, or the British trying to impose their particular state religion. It's it's sort of uh, you know taking whatever whatever is available, whatever is on hand. And sort of, uh, you know, pushing it and manipulating it and advancing certain segments of it in order to suit your own interests. Yeah, I, to that end, I'll, I'll say this and then we'll move out of the 18, you know, or, or mostly out of the the 1800s, although there's a little bit more to say about the Saudis. But we were talking about Afghani earlier and as the original guy um, who was the original political Islamist. And he, it's pointed out in the Dreyfus book that the guy himself was an atheist of all things, hmm. which you wouldn't, which seems, you know, crazy. Um, but he, he was outwardly pious. OK, constructing this detailed right. plan for politics based on a really austere version of, of Islam uh, during the actual time of the prophet, you know, and, and when he reigned over Mecca. But in his more some of his more obscure writings, he was explicit about his actual beliefs. And he said uh, he wrote, we do not cut the head of religion except with the sword of religion. Therefore, if you were to see us now, you would see ascetics and worshipers kneeling and genuflecting, never disobeying God's command and doing all that they are ordered to do. So he's essentially saying that only like people like himself could actually cut the head of religion. I mean, this is, it's like a sort of a building of, of, a, of a kind of movement, but for social control purposes. And uh, a, a British historian, you know, an Orientalist, which is what they all were who studied this stuff at the time, wrote, um, this letter makes absolutely clear that one of Afghani's aims, of which his disciple Abda yeah. knew and approved, was the subversion of the Islamic religion and that the method adopted to this end was the practice of a false but showy devotion. Um, in fact, although he preached Islamic orthodoxy to the masses, Afghani was a closet atheist who railed 
against not only Islam, but all religions. And to yeah. a more esoteric group of listeners, um, Afghani uh, yeah. said, religions, whatever they are called, resemble one another. No understanding and no reconciliation is possible between these religions and philosophy. Religion imposes its faith and its creed on man, while philosophy liberates him from them wholly or in part. <laughs> so um, this is... He, and he was a, he was a Freemason as well, which does not really is not compatible with being a hardcore Islamist. So it seems like you could say that he was like a a Nietzschean or a even a, or a Straussian or some kind of postmodern person, really, in terms of his actual assessment of the utility of religion and the use of of myth making for purposes of social control. And that's all the way back in the you know nineteenth century, so this is this is pretty hardcore. Um, now, where this gets crazier with the British is, and when you see this reading about these things, make makes me. Well, I don't need to make myself more paranoid, but when I look at when I was reading this, it made me just think again, or it reminded me again that, like, when it comes to the world wars and the you know the, the geopolitical intrigues of the 20th century before World War II, but really, I mean, this aspects of World War II that are very weird too. Um, that it, you, it's hard to say exactly how much some of these other concerns uh influenced british strategy and what the british might have been doing at this time to try to advance these in ways that we still are not, are in the dark about or that are still controversial because the british plan in world war 1 was to really go after the ottoman empire like that was one of the main things that they were focused on i mean it's the the rise of germany was terrifying to the brits in the later parts of the 1800s and the early part of the 20th century, because they were already, they had like surpassed them in industrial production. Like the British were the first to industrialize mm-hmm. and they took advantage of that to create this huge empire around the world with their machine guns, blowing everyone to bits and so on. But the Germans were better at it than the Brits. And they were working on this Berlin Baghdad railway uh, that would have connected, would have gone through the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian empire through the Balkans um, across and into the Ottoman Empire, into like Basra, Baghdad, and there had been oil discovered there. And it was n- known, it was becoming known, becoming clear to people that oil was the way of the future. And so this Berlin-Baghdad railway would have been terrifying to the Brits and probably led to some of the things that started World War One. And people have pointed to evidence suggesting that the British were behind the Black Hand that assassinated uh, Archduke Ferdinand, for example, and, and is credited for sparking World War One. And in general, it's kind of an Athens and a Sparta thing where it's like the they see the rise of Germany and they're really, really worried about it. And so they're wanting to forestall that. And, and so part of these efforts in the Middle East had to have been geared towards that idea, especially when you know ahead after the fact how important it does end up being in world history, the, the discovery of all this oil and the use of it. So this part was eye-opening to me, and I read this years ago, and I reread it recently for this, uh, and, and I think I'd forgotten some of the details of it. But the policy was cooked up in London by a Middle East team, Lord Curzon, the ultra-imperialist foreign secretary, former India governor, uh, the aristocratic Robert Cecil, sounds just like a British imperialist name, 
Uh, his cousin, Arthur Lord Balfour, who we have Vaguely, heard, yeah. uh, who with Rothschild backing promised Palestine to the Jews. Yeah. Mark Sykes, the duplicitous mm-hmm. chief right. of the Foreign Office's yeah. Middle East section. And David George Hogarth, the head of the Arab Bureau and the author of a cryptically titled book, The Penetration of Arabia. And these are the guys that got together and were saying like, we got some plans here. 